Named after the mechanism that separates the sweet wort from the spent grains, False Bottom Girls features two beer experts filtering through the brewing industry to guide listeners through the wonderful, yet sometimes confusing, world of beer. Hi, my name is Rachel Hudson. I'm the co-owner and head brewer of Pilot Brewing in Charlotte, North Carolina, and an advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair. I'm the beer program coordinator with New Realm Brewing in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am also an advanced Cicerone. Okay, go. Do it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I think that I think that's the beginning. That's how we're starting. Yeah, that that's that tracks. Mm-hmm. Don't don't turn off this podcast. This is what you think it is. If you're looking for hopnology or false bottom girls, you found them both. So this is very exciting. We are recording together on a beautiful Sunday morning, and this is Greg. I've got James, Jen, and Rachel, and we are all here. It's like the crossover episode between Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. It is. Right? Yeah. How cool is that? Right? Mm-hmm. And we will get this out on the Hopnology YouTube channel, so you will be able to see all of us, all of us together here, drinking our coffee. It's morning, so we're behaving ourselves. Well, I, 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 I promise this is coffee. That's, yeah. yes. you know. We have to make that promise? Also coffee. Okay. Not promising. Nope. <laughs> promise, <laughs> promise. Promise. <laughs> So, so I guess we'll start for the, for those of you. Um, well, thank you, thank you for joining us. This is going to be a lot of fun. We are excited to get to know you. We, uh, I'll tell the story I told a few minutes ago, which is that I I found you guys on Instagram through our friend Asa, who does the Beer Paired Life Instagram, and I listened to a couple of your episodes, and I texted James and said, "You got to listen to these two. It's it's like us." <laughs> just like us and so we've started listening to you i know you started listening to us and we've been talking for a while by getting together here um because we we have i think similar viewpoints on a lot of things in the brewing industry but you you're coming at it from a brewing perspective we're coming at it from a growing perspective and uh i the, the merger can only be more than the sum of its parts right so, <laughs> so for for your audience james and i are hopnology we for 10, 12, 87 years, had mm, hop something fields, like that. something yep. like that. Mm-hmm. We, we grew hops out in central Wisconsin. We now, um, that was um, called Gorse Valley Hops. We are now Hopnology and we do uh, consulting and um, online resources and things like that for small scale hop growers. And right. uh, as well as for brewing formulation and things like that. We just right. love the industry. We love beer. And um, we have our own podcast. We are coming up on 100 episodes, so we're super excited wow. about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, James, anything you want to add to? Uh... Uh, I do, aside from the techie plant physiologist, scientist guy, I'm also a sensory scientist and a, an aroma scientist so that I teach at Siebel Institute in Chicago. And uh, particularly around hop chemistry and uh, aroma chemistry in beer from hops hop extracts, hop, pro- advanced hop products, as we say. So all things hops and um, gives me a great soapbox upon which to complain about the state of beer. So, <laughs> And I'm a professional beer drinker. So that's right. where I come into the mix here. Excellent. So Jen and Rachel. Yeah, well, thank you guys also for reaching out. And, um, you know, a, f- a funny story. So Asa is definitely... Uh, touched several parts of my life, but she and I met in Charlotte in 2000, I believe 17, when we were both taking the advanced Cicerone exam. Uh, We sat next to each other. And um, since then, you know, she's, we have several people. So if you're listening, 
Asa, thank you very much for uh, connecting us here. But then also we've had, you know, several people that she, she's very talented at bringing the community together in interesting ways. Um, but yes, yeah, so for everyone listening who is not familiar with us, we are False Bottom Girls. And this is, um, Rachel and I started this podcast, I guess, a little over a year and yeah. maybe like a year and a half or so ago. We actually started uh, way, way back in the beginning of 2019 talking about the idea and finally decided, you know what, we're just going to go for it. And uh, recorded a few episodes, uh, thought we recorded a few episodes, and it turns out we did not. Oh, yeah. And, yeah I've been there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> um, kind of trial and error. And, uh, you know, finally, and I know that you guys can attest to this, the actual putting it out there is probably one of the most difficult steps of, you know, this is something we've been talking about, something we're passionate about, and then putting it out there for the public consumption um, was really kind of scary, but we did that in August of 2019. So our podcast, the, you know, the different episodes uh, really vary on what, what the topics are. So Rachel and I are both advanced Cicerones. We're both studying for the master Cicerone exam. Um, if not for, you know, gesturing to the world around us, we would have sat for the master Cicerone exam this past October. Uh, so a lot of our topics come out of the two of us studying for the master Cicerone exam and picking out a lot of times picking out topics that we don't actually feel particularly strong about because learning to communicate those those concepts to people is one of the best ways to learn uh, so I, I know I'm definitely excited to be with you guys today before I joined New Realm I was actually in the malt side of the business uh, specifically craft malt so a lot of talking about flavor, a lot of talking about how, you know, craft malt is so much different from, you know, basically the malt that everybody has been used to using really until the last 10 years ago or so. So I think this is a really interesting synergy to have, you know, kind of us together. We can almost make like a really interesting beer together. <laughs> we just need some, some yeast people and some water people on this podcast and we'll have all of our expertise I think we could find them. I think we could find them. So, yeah, and then I'll, I'll let Rachel kind of introduce herself and her side of, of the podcast. Yeah, sure. So, I'm Rachel. I uh, have been brewing since about 2011, but I kind of started in the beer world on the serving side as serving in beer bars, if you will, um, specifically Capitol House in Richmond, Virginia, where I'm from, just a huge amount of beer selection. So, I learned very much uh, about serving, drinking beer before I learned about brewing it. Uh, started for a brewery in Richmond called Hardywood Park Craft Brewing in 2011. Um, they taught me how to brew. I, they, had, they had hired one person to work there and it was a huge amount of work. So I got kind of lucky in the sense of being available and learning um, you know, how to clean kegs and do the dirty work and start from the bottom. And um, it was great. And so I spent about two and a half years there Went out to Colorado to work for Left Hand Brewing for about a year. Um, my husband now, he was commuting back and forth for work. He's a pilot. So we got when we got the chance for him to be here, to live here and work here, we chose to move to Charlotte, I say here, to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I worked for Noda Brewing Company for a while while we opened up our small little nano brewery, Pilot Brewing Company, uh, play on his job and our small batch brewing style. Mm -hmm. So... Um, 
you know, long, long story short, that is me in a nutshell. We've been open for two and a half years now, almost. And we just love making small batch specialized whatever we want. Um, we really don't do the flagship thing that much. We kind of have a couple beers here and there we keep, but we just like to keep it real, keep it small, do what we want. We brew within traditional styles and try to keep a nice range on. And um, we like to brew to, to enter competition specifically because that's one of our fun things we like to do is mm-hmm. enter competition. So we brew styles to, to win. Cool. And, um, yeah, we just have fun. Right now we have like, what do we have? Four, 12, 16 draft lines, bunch of cans. Because of the virus, we started canning. So we uh, pump out small little batches. We probably do about like 300 barrels a year right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I definitely brewed more beer in one day at left hand. Than- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. I hate working for the big guy. I hate doing the big thing, the production side, even though we do it now a little bit. Um, but it's fun to just kind of have creative control. So that's what our brewery is all about. And then I get to do fun things like this podcast. Nice. Yes. So here we are. Very cool. Well, and, and, you know, that since, since you brought it up about different styles and small batch, um, you know, one of the things that, that I had wanted to ask, and one of the things James and I have talked about a lot is – um, is our styles in the industry and IPA bombs being all the rage for what feels like forever now. And not, neither one of us are, are huge fans of those. And the, world, the word you hear us talk about a lot is balanced. Is mm-hmm. If it's a balanced IPA is great. Most mm-hmm. of them are not. Most of them are, um, you know, the more you can, hops can cover lots of bad brewing practices if you throw enough mm-hmm. of them in there. So mm-hmm. as, so for both of you from your respective breweries, how do you, how do you balance what, brewing what you want to brew? And both of you studying for, for Cicerone, I mean, you, you know all the styles that are out there. You've got your favorites, but I imagine you also respect the styles that you don't enjoy from, from the craft perspective. But how do, you, how do you run a business and cater to today's tastes, which I'll say are unbalanced, <laughs> but, but still do, do what you love? Right. I mean, I, I have a fairly short answer to this because as Rachel puts it, I'm on the desk side of the brewery. Uh, so I'm usually if I'm in the brew house, they know it's because I have like some weird request or um, I, I'm very fortunate to have an extremely knowledgeable brewing staff who is also extremely indulgent when I just randomly send them teams messages to be like, do we do a ferulic acid rest on our Hefeweizen? Why or why not? Um, you know, they're, they're like, they're very, they're very tolerant of that. Um, but for me, I, I do that. I answer that from the homebrewing side. So for instance, yesterday I brewed an American Porter. Um, this upcoming weekend, I'm going to brew a Grzycki because if you know anything about me, you know how much I love smoked beers. Uh, and that's really where I'm able to find my my curiosity for different styles and studying for master having that homebrew scale system has been fantastic because I might not particularly like a Scottish export, let's say, but I can brew five gallons of it and I can learn through that experience a little bit more about that, that style and appreciation for that style. 
I am going to send you a self-addressed box because those are my, the, the Porter and the Grudisky, those are two of my favorites. So excellent. I'm going to send, send you a box with my address on it. and um, Samples yes. for sensory analysis. Exactly. Yes, exactly. exactly. Right. I would yep. love to do that. And actually a really cool thing about this Porter that I made yesterday is uh, Sugar Creek Malt Company in Indiana. I also talk about them all the time because they are really leading the charge in terms of innovation for craft brewing with craft malt but they sent me a few pounds of bourbon barrel aged chocolate malt and mm. so that is what i used in my american porter yesterday and the spent grain smell amazing the mash smelled amazing it's you wouldn't i don't think you're going to taste it and say is this barrel aged but it's going to add that kind of complexity to it in the background mm -hmm. uh, but i digress i'm just very excited about that beer uh nice. like rachel said when I was looking for a career in the beer industry. I didn't want, brewing never appealed to me because I didn't want to be a production brewer. And I know of plenty of brewers who do have flagships or do have beers where their most popular beer is not the one that they like. You know, it's not their favorite, it's not their favorite style, but they're brewing it for that customer demand, which is also why when Rachel had approached me about working at Pilot, when they were first opening, I jumped at the chance because they, and I, I will let her take over in just a second, but that opportunity to just brew what you want. And as she says, she has very much an educational brewery for the employees and for guests. So saying I would like to brew this and then kind of figuring out how to make that work was something for me with a nano brewery like Pilot was a fantastic way of just being able to brew the beers that you like, not brewing the beers that the market dictates, which is, is kind of where New Realm is, and just in terms of scale and production is very much in, you know, both of the states where we're distributed, you have to have a distributor. So it's, it's more of like a um, demand pulling supply rather than supply pushing demand. Right. Yeah. I would say it's totally opposite for me because um, like you said, New Realm's got so much beer. They have to sell it. Like you can't just go, you know, make 500, 600 barrels of, you know, oh, Lichtenhainer. I mean, it's not, it's going to take a while. Oh <laughs> my God. I wish we could. <laughs> no, but for me, it's so great because I mean, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you know, I hate the New Englands, you know, I hate milkshake. Like anything gimmicky, I'm not going to do. I'm just not going to do it. I don't like it. There's no reason to. I also am um, making super small amount of beer. Like my biggest batch is six barrels, but I don't need to. Like when there's so many breweries around me that are, like I especially don't need to. Um, we thrive on Cicerone. I say thrive because I, I very much instill it into our team. I get them to that second level. Um, I encourage them to go further. You know, I give them the tools they need to get there, which, you know, that is a BJCP style guideline focused test. So mm -hmm. those are what we, those are the styles we brew to. Now, don't get me wrong. Like we enter all the competitions. When I say we brew to those styles, other competitions have the same styles. They just have different styles. So we're just like, when I say, when I, if I tell them to go study, I tell them to go study that. But we just like, if when you, if we brew an ESB, you're going to get an ESB. It's not going to be this weird take on ESB, which I've had people like that I've even interviewed being like, I like to do 
weird things and like make, you know, really weird red ales, like not just a red ale, but like all these things. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have time for that. I don't have time to teach you why that's not like, or to undo all these habits. Like (laughs) for me, it's just, you don't need, and when like going back to New England IPA specifically, because I know this is just like what everyone loves. (laughs) No, no. No. I I say if you're like 28 or younger, right? (laughs) Craft beer, you probably like these things. Perfect example of why we don't (sighs) beers. I have two really great stories. Well, or examples. One, we make southeastern IPA. Um, It is a style that I didn't. I did not not come up with this. Like, actually, I heard about it because Noda Brewery made the first one that I heard of, which is fine. But like, this is a kind of a newer IPA style. All it is is just brewed with like the use of corn or grits. Um, it's still got a low bitterness, high hop flavor, high hop aroma, like in New England, but it's clear and it doesn't have the hop burn and it, it's not overly hopped. And people who love New England IPAs love this beer. They love this style. They don't understand what they like. They're just being told the hazier, the better. And I'm like, that's not true. And this is why. (laughs) And then you talk about the hot burn and they're like, oh yeah. And I hear about it from buyers all the time too. Like they're so over the New England IPA. Like they love it when I just have like this clear. And I tell them like people, if you know anything about Rachel or Pilot Brewing and Charlotte Beer World, you know that they don't do New England's. I make it very clear. I, I, my, I, my Southeastern IPA right now is called Snowbird and it has like a plane going from New England to, to like Florida. It's like very obvious that I hate the style. And so, but people love it. Like nobody comes to, they don't, no one's like, oh, let's go to pilot. Let's not go to pilot. Cause they don't have a New England. People don't say that, but I, I get, I mean, it works for me because I don't have a crap ton of beer. I don't need to appeal to the bro market of the Hayes bro, New England IPA. And if you, on, on a flip side, we do contract brewing, so I can do it. I just choose not to do it. Greg, don't we have an episode called A Little Dead on the Inside? We, yes. Rachel said, did you oh. die a little bit on the inside every time yep. you have to do that? I think, that's a, I think that was actually about hop cone um, growth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. But, but it does <laughs> resonate with how you feel sometimes looking at these beer lists. Right. Um, but I don't need to do those styles. And right. my brewery is a perfect example of them of not needing to do it. We've never done it. We've never, we don't do, like, I don't mind if you make a stout with some vanilla beans and cocoa nibs and toasted coconut, but you don't need to throw pies and donuts into it. And that's the limit, you know? It's Just like, don't get, batter don't, mix. <laughs> get, these ingredients, get these flavors from somewhere else. And I think people really appreciate that. We also are really transparent in everything we do with like the community. We do a lot of community focus, like brews, like involved, like the homebrew club. We brew the homebrew club winners, beers, mm-hmm. you know, so like people know if you want something, if you want to have like an option, we don't, we have new beers all the time. So they can rely on that. They like that. They can um, rely on the fact that I'm going to not have the New England IPA if they're like me and don't like that stuff. Um, if I release an ESB, people know it's going to be a classic ESB, you know, and or brown ale, and they can they get excited. Like Jen made me, uh, made, I say made me because she made me um, brew a brown ale for. We, we're doing this promotion called the Twelve or the Brewers Days of Christmas. We release twelve beers in twelve days. Mm-hmm. Today's like number ten or something, and I did a brown ale. So I was like, Jen, I don't know what to brew, and I have Cali ale. <laughs> <laughs> like, how about a brown ale? It's like, oh, so boring. She's like, but it's not because no one brews it. I was like, yeah. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm, yeah, it was like if I walked into any brewery and saw just an American brown ale that just said American brown ale, I would yep. be so excited. That's yep. one of my favorite breweries here. I talk about them all the time, the vintage. They have one called Butternut Road, and it's it's a straight-up American brown ale. And, man, it hits the spot because, yeah, yeah. you don't see them. It works. People yeah. love it. Yep. And especially buyers. Like, it's so funny because I, I will distribute so much German Hefeweizen so much ESB, so much brown ale, and not really that much IPA. Because there's so many IPA options, but yep. there's none of these others. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I make beers like that, I, they just fly. Yeah, so I'm gasping for a quality ESB. I can't get one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can. I have, I have one place out here that makes a, a, a very nice ESB, and I'm always showing it to James on camera and teasing mm-hmm. him. <laughs> I can get, I can get <laughs> So we're also not <laughs> profitable yet, so... <laughs> <laughs> take, take that with what you will. Hey, that's <laughs> never stopped Greg or, or, or myself. No, <laughs> ever. No, so, that's the man, but, you know, still in the red. <laughs> yeah. so, so from a taproom perspective, and, you know, we, we have a couple of, of – of stereotypical characters on our show one of them his name is john he's the he's behind the bar and we always say don't be john john's the one who sits there behind the bar and talks about how smart he is about beer to people who don't know what to drink so you've got folks come into your tap room you've got an esb and a brown and you don't have the standards what do you do with that consumer who's looking at your servers going well you know, I, I'm, I'm only into double IPAs. The more alcohol, the better. What do you got for me? Sure. How do you convince them that a brown ale is worth their time? Well, we have, we typically do have a good range. We can find something you want. Um, when you, if you have that person who, you either have a person who's willing to try something or not. Like if they're in there for the New England IPA, like I had a Hefeweizen on draft and I named it Hazy Skies Hefeweizen on purpose. And when we ran out, I had a guy come in looking for that New England IPA specifically. And I made him like stumble through his words. I was like, what do you mean? Like, he's like, you know, the hazy. I was like, that's hey, awesome. Want, we have another wheat beer. We have a wit beer. You want to try that? And he's like, try it. He's like, I don't like this. He loved the Southeastern. I'm like, Ugh. and then I finally like gave in and like told him, you know, it was a wheat beer, but you don't like people, people are don't awful. Know what they They're like. awful. They're just, <laughs> I hate them all. I've been, I've been dealing with, people who (laughs) like the beer customer since I was 19, because when you worked at this beer bar, they taught you like, okay, you're going to have customers who are the guy who comes in and he knows everything about beer and he knows what he wants. Just whatever, just give him what you want. But then you have people who are like, okay, I want the highest thing in alcohol. Well, at our brewery, that's going to be a stout right now, or this like Saison I have, and they might like either of those, but normally those people don't really come into like the craft brewery tap room that closes at 9 p.m. You don't mm-hmm. really get it that much. Right. Um, so typically those people, you just give them the highest alcohol or you figure out what they really actually like. And it's normally like a light lager. Mm-hmm. But um, you you can, if people want some advice, you they're very easy to guide. Like we have a beer for everybody, whether you're a wine drinker or you only like mimosas or you only like coffee normally, like we can guide you. And we, I mean, through anything really as long as you're open to being guided, if you come in with that attitude of, well, I only like IPAs and I'm only going to drink New England. Well, I mean, I, all I can do is give you a sample and explain to you why you, why this is better in my opinion. But I mean, most people are there for the experience. Like you don't really have like, there are breweries that do have those people. Like we are in a neighborhood 
that is kind of low key, a little bit older of a crowd. Like if you go to the south end of Charlotte, it is very broy, and you do get like, oh, I just want the hazy, <laughs> yeah, the highest alcohol. So they, I mean, those people are out there. You can only do what you do. Like when you have when you have someone asking for something like that, they don't know, they don't have that much knowledge to really understand what your offerings are, anyways. They're drinking what they're being told to drink by yeah, they're just like, their oh, market influences. Where's the hazy? This beer I had last week had the word hazy next to it. Like literally, this guy is drinking freaking Hefeweizen for probably two months thinking he was drinking a New England IPA. Mm-hmm. And I did it on purpose, knowing people would order that beer, not even realizing. Oh, I I did- okay. Rachel, I knew I liked you just from your podcast. I like you even more now. <laughs> because that's a that's a straight up James move right there. So that's <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's Yeah, so well we have at um specifically in Atlanta, um I have a John and I have spent most of my career actively fighting against Johns as employees and as customers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a big part of my role with New Realm is like the the majority of my role is education and that's also educating our staff. And for me, you know, having been like looked over or talked down to uh, enough in the, the brewing world, when I go up to the bar, when arguably I know more, more than likely I know more than the person behind the bar, um, you know, speaking to somebody respectfully and going through that exercise of helping them find something that they like is very, very important to me. Uh, so from my perspective to ensure against John's is making sure that the staff has the education and the confidence that they need. So if somebody comes in and says, I usually only like hazies or I'm not really sure what I like. Normally I drink cider or seltzer or whatever that they can then ask those kinds of leading questions and create, you know, an educational environment for the customer as well. Because I've talked with plenty of people who will tell you that, their favorite beer is, you know, some special release from Sierra Nevada three years ago, but it's specifically because they went into a bar not knowing anything about beer. The bartender spoke to them and gave them several different beers to try. And that was the one that they really liked. And they will tell you, that's one of my favorite beers. And you know, and, oh, I always look for it and I can't find it. But it's one of the reasons why it's their favorite is because somebody took the time to teach them about the beer and to mm-hmm. help them go through the process of figuring out what it is that they like. Yeah, very true. That's why we're so like, our, our people that work at Pilot, they brew and bartend. They do both. They 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 do everything. So they there's not many people, so it's easy. <laughs> but there's three, but they spend their time brewing and they spend their time bartending. So it was very much intentional because I hated going into breweries and the person working behind the bar doesn't even know how big the system is. Doesn't know like the basic questions. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was just so tacky and I did not want that. Um, so, and plus like they want to brew and they love it and they get to do it literally whatever they want a lot of the times when it comes to brewing. So there's a lot of ownership back there for them. So they, they're equally as proud as the beers serving as I am. I think a lot of times I'm also kind of so intimidating. Like I got my like boots on and I'm like <laughs> work and I'm like people are, if, if I happen to open the bar, which I do sometimes, I'm like, okay, what do you want? You know, like, <laughs> like come on, <laughs> come on, come on, make with it. Come on. <laughs> I'll help you. It is not I, like I'm helpful, but I just don't, I don't, no one tries to give me bullshit. And um, cause I, Amanda will tell me stories of people like, or Casey too. I'm like, man, 
why, why don't I ever get that? Why do I always miss the good stuff? You know, I always miss it. How come this never happens to me? I don't think I just give, I don't give anyone time. To like- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm used to that. I, get that. I know exactly what you're talking about. See, I'm that ignoring, annoying consumer who will get in between another consumer and the bartender and say, no, no, I, I know what he, I know. I can just tell. I know what he's going to like. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm the Greg, I guess. We'll, yeah, the, the uninvited opinion. The uninvited opinion. That is me. <laughs> if I opinion. have time, I'll be the first person to take someone behind the bar back into the brewery because it's like right there. It's so easy. Mm-hmm. I, and I love doing that. If they're worth it. You yeah. Know, yep. The, the John. If- yeah, John. Yeah, you don't want a John. No, I don't want a John. no, you don't need to feed that ego. Yeah, and if you're yeah, if you're listening and you wonder if you're a John, then you probably are. So stop. Yeah, just, just stop. It. Podcast off now. Yeah, very true. <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> All right, let's talk some hops. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You- I definitely know just like everything. Like how, how did it start? It why did you do it? Why don't you do it now? You don't. Oh, you don't history. Know no, right. we don't have a farm anymore. Yeah. Um, why did we do it? I started it. Uh, long, 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 long story short. I did agricultural field research all over the world for years and years. And I saw all these other crops, cropping communities in other countries, mostly in Central and South America, that were growing specialty crops, melons, berries, cacao, coffee, whatever it happens to be, as communities. And they had certain members in the community that would take and basically broker the relationship between the grower and the, the, the buyer, in many cases, a large like Dole or Del Monte or somebody like that, right? And they would broker the whole relationship. They would go and understand what the quality demands were, understand what the market forces were, look at contracts, come back, communicate that to the people who are actually doing the production. And then they would do a value share. So nobody, you know, that in that go-between, let's call it a middleman, didn't take a cut until after everything was sold. And then they shared in the value of whatever was created as a percentage. So it was, they were highly incentivized to get the people who were doing the growing to produce the highest quality, the most, you know, just whatever the top end of that uh, market would allow because they were going to get a bigger cut if they did that. I said, I want to do that at home because our agricultural system is broken, but I needed a crop to do it on. And I didn't, I couldn't re I didn't want to reinvent the wheel, right? I didn't want to have to build a market from scratch for something nobody wants like aronia berries or something like that. Right. Uh, so what, what do I have baked in to Wisconsin that I don't have to do anything for drunk people? Drunk people, yeah. Um, well, cheese, but we have plenty of, of cheese makers. Beer, okay. So I looked at malting and I looked at, you know, these other things. I looked at hops. And as I got deeper into hops uh, education, Wisconsin was one of the largest producers of hops in the 1860s through just under the turn of the century. Okay, so great, they'll grow here. But you wouldn't believe how many times you can't grow hops in Wisconsin. Hmm, really? Uh little book for you to read but uh that's how it started and so we said we came up with this this program called the charter grower program where growers would get invested in their own production we didn't own anything on their property we were there as a technical support we were there as the the uh broker basically on their behalf but we were going to build a brand 
behind it, Gorse Valley Hops. And we were going to do things differently uh, in order to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace. And that's where all of my aroma science and chemistry and whatnot came in with drying temperature and looking at the components that brewers want and where can we be different than the market is now, than the large scale hop growers. And you look at it and you say, well, why are you drying with high heat? Well, because that's how you do it. No, that's a way to do it. <laughs> but you're blowing off X, Y, and Z volatile. So why are you doing it that way? And, you know, being told for years and years that we can't, can't do that. So we said baloney. So, you know, as part of this whole thing, I had Greg involved and Joe, our, my chemistry buddy and Dan, our drying guy, you know, all these people that had the technical expertise that I thought we were going to need to address these hurdles. And we really pounded on the technical side. Uh, we really dug deep into the agroeconomics of what we were doing and started to build a brand that way and leveraged our, our technical acumen to interface with brewers to say, you know, we're adding value. Now we're not just not selling you hops. I can also probably tell you how to fix your beer mm -hmm. and th that added value. Um, it just, it got to the point, we built the company up enough. We had a branded uh, drying technology called AromaSmart, which by the way, Greg, did you see my email from Nebraska? I did, I did yes. validation, yes. Yes, yeah, the University of Nebraska Lincoln repeated our experiment that, and okay. validated all of our data. That's so, excellent. I'm like, mm. <laughs> it works stop calling low temperature drying 135 degrees fahrenheit dick so, um, anyway so that's how it started and we got to the point where uh, i think at our largest we had a hundred and 120 acres in mm -hmm. production both our own because we were finding we couldn't get people were all interested in hops but they weren't interested in doing the work around what was going to be required to make quality. And we were finding that we were making more inroads with brewers than we could supply. And in order to have any kind of degree of confidence in our supply, we had to start growing ourselves. So we did and started small and it grew and it grew and it grew. And then pretty soon we had 65 acre farm parcel of our own. And when most of our growers were one and two acres. So we learned a hard lesson there. But we discovered that if we were going to continue to do this, we needed to take a pretty hard left turn, pivot as we always talk about, and either go into it significantly, which frankly we were relatively debt free at the time. So, or we need to do something else. And I didn't have it in me anymore to pivot and take that much more risk and that much more of my life away from you know, my loved ones and my friends and no, I'm done. So let's yeah. take the best parts of what we, what we are doing and let's focus on that. And Hopnology was born. So education, research, uh, consulting, complaining about stuff. <laughs> so that's, there you go. That's the background. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> so I, I know I had this as, as I was writing um, these questions the other day, uh, something that I've run into, and I believe I mentioned this, I, being in the malt world, I spent a considerable amount of time speaking with barley growers and maltsters in places like upstate New York. So kind of the same thing mm -hmm. where um, 
you know, people, when the craft malt movement started, there were a lot of people who said, you can't grow barley here. Barley's grown in, in Colorado and Montana and Idaho. You don't grow barley here. You don't grow barley in the Southwest or Southeast. Mm -hmm. And now barley's being grown everywhere. But one of the issues in a state like, say, New York that has farm brewery laws, wherein the, you know, the brewers have to use, I think now it's, if you have a farm brewery license, you have to use up to 80% of local yep. ingredients. Um, and one of the things I learned in talking with growers, specifically growers who did barley and hops, is that they didn't ever, they, they were fine in terms of always being able to supply the demand for malt uh, because they could grow barley. There were enough barley growers in the state who could make that happen. Uh, but one of the challenges that they experienced with, was with hops, uh, specifically, you know, the, the hops that you can grow in upstate New York are not typically the kinds of hops that brewers are wanting to buy right now, right? They're wanting those juicy, you know, a lot of proprietary brands that only a handful of people really own those brands and or own those varieties and can supply those so they could grow hops but whether people would buy them would be a different story uh, so all of that is just a very long uh, preface of me asking in terms of hop innovations if i'm a new if i'm interested in getting into growing hops how accessible are hop innovations to small-scale growers Little to none. Okay. Uh, so follow-up question. Frankly. What would be the incentive? Right. So there's a, there, and I, the reason I say that is if we, if we use your preface of variety, uh, breeding specifically, mm -hmm. proprietary breeding, breeding, um, that take just on the, on the, back of the envelope numbers, we do the calculations to bring a, any given variety to market that's, let's say, successful is 10 years and a million dollars. Easy. Um, there's gobs and gobs of research being done on looking at genetic markers to do some quick pass-through screening to figure out, yeah, right. this one will produce the varieties we want. It takes a long time. And so these people that have uh, that like the hop breeding group and, and folks of that and select botanicals that are doing a lot of these breedings have literally millions of dollars wrapped up in these varieties. And so I, and some of them are my acquaintances. Um, so I, you know, I've never really bashing people on the, on making, making back their investment in their IP, but for small scale growers, you know, one of the things they, they look at, one of the first things they look at when they encounter, uh, this market narrowing of focus, brewer market, you know, narrowed focus of these proprietary smash mouth, easy button hops is I need to do that too, to compete. And I don't think I know that that is absolutely the wrong approach to take because you can't, mm -hmm. uh, it would be akin to winning the lottery a dozen times over if you found one. And then how could you, even at your tiny, tiny scale, put the hundreds of thousands of dollars behind your marketing campaign in order to get it out there? It's just not going to happen. Right. So what are you going to do, right? That's your follow-up. Uh, 
we can segue this into Greg, into our local question about what does that mean? Because sure. that is a huge topic on our forum. One that I'm very passionate about. What does that local mean and what value does it have? But also how does one position themselves to make enough of a splash to stay economically viable? Mm -hmm. So for small scale growers, it's relationship building, number one. Mm -hmm. This has been False Bottom Girls. And we make the brewing world go round.